Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. I'm starting out a little differently this week because, well, this show is different. Back in late November of 2018, we hosted our first ever live show at the Civic Center in downtown Silver Spring, Maryland. We invited listeners to join us, and it was an amazing evening. Strangers sharing stories, revealing the beauty, vulnerability, and transformative experiences, reflecting on the theme, One Family, Many Beliefs. This week, we're revisiting that show. I hope you enjoy this special broadcast of an inspired story slam produced by Interfaith Voices. Our story slam theme is Many Beliefs, One Family. Why that topic? Well, these days, our faith identities are diversifying. And so it's not uncommon for a family gathering to include members from a variety of faith traditions or none at all. People with competing beliefs and attitudes. How we navigate those relationships can be at times beautiful, hilarious, or even complicated. Sometimes it even makes us feel alone. Many of us are looking for a chance to connect. And we thought, what better way than to share our stories? So welcome. As you know, we are going to be talking about a topic that is near and dear to your heart. If you'd like to tell your story, don't be intimidated. Just take that card, put your name down, your hometown, or where you'd like to be from, and fold it up and pass it around. And, and the basket's going to keep moving. It's going to keep moving, because sometimes you don't feel it right away. It comes a little later. Yeah, I see some head shaking. All right, so we're going to get started and get into the storytelling, which I'm excited about. But before we do that, especially for our listeners, I want us to get just a little primer on some of the joys and challenges of living in multi-faith families from our guest, Susan Katzmiller. Now, she's an author, speaker, consultant, coach, and interfaith activist. That's a mouthful. You're busy. <laughs> Working to create spaces for interfaith families and people with complex religious identities. She's the author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family, and the Interfaith Family Journal, which is coming out next year. Susan, welcome to Interfaith Voices. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm really excited about this format and hearing from a lot of other people. Absolutely. Well, I hope we're going to hear from a lot of other people, so get, hold those pens, get ready. <laughs> we want to get started. I, I just, you know, I just laid the context of where we are. We're in Silver Spring. It's a diverse community. But at the same time, it hasn't always been that way. And I know you have this book. The title caught my attention. When I got married 20 years ago, I know I was looking for a book like that. Yeah. Can you give me a little backstory? Why? Why did you write this book? Sure. I'm an interfaith kid. Um, I have a Jewish parent and a Christian parent. And when my husband and I got married, we moved to West Africa. And there I found myself to be a nice Jewish girl married to a Protestant boy working for a Catholic organization in a Muslim country. <laughs> and... The rest of my life is kind of unrolled like that, and I don't think it's a coincidence that I chose this community in which to raise my kids. 
Uh, this is becoming the norm in large metropolitan areas that we do love across those lines. We meet each other at work, we go to school together, and this is what happens. So. I have to ask, what was it like growing up? So my parents chose one religion, which is what most traditional religious institutions and clergy will still encourage you to do. My husband, and so they raised us in Judaism. I consider myself a Jew. But my husband and I made a different choice, which was to raise the kids with both religions, which was very controversial. And my first book is about this movement, kind of a grassroots movement of people saying, you know what, we want to honor both, we want to do both, we don't care that much what the religious institutions are telling us anymore. And I think this has been a contributing factor in people leaving a lot of those more traditional religious institutions, as well as issues of you know, giving roles of power to women and LGBTQ issues, but you know, not accepting the idea of interfaith marriage has been a problem. Um, and so people are just going to do it anyway. And that's what we see. And for me, that is invigorating and joyful because people are kind of creating ways of being together that, that haven't occurred before in history and that can be very inspiring. I'm struck by two things that you just said. You described at a time in which religious institutions were pushing for singular expression or singular, making a single choice. Can you speak more to that? Um, I think that the narrative was that children would be confused if you tried to give them religious literacy in more than one religion, if you tried to give them interfaith education. And I think now what a lot of people are seeing is that all of our children need interfaith education, whether they have parents from one religion or two or three or no religion. I mean, even if you have to atheists, often they see that their children need that kind of basic literacy in religion and culture in order to understand the people living around them, their classmates and their co-workers as they grow up. And as you're describing that interfaith education and creating a new space, I, I want to go back to what you and your, your kind of the cohort that you kind of created, the group that you pulled together. What did you, what did you all seek to do? What did you want to do differently? And what were you trying to do? So in this first book, I'm a journalist, I'm a former Newsweek reporter, so there's a memoir thread that runs through it, but also I went across the country and there are groups doing this, specifically Jewish and Christian interfaith family groups, giving kids literacy in both in a lot of major cities, Chicago, New York, Washington, and I interviewed both and surveyed both parents and children about their experiences to try to find out why were they doing this? It seemed like it was harder. Isn't it easier to just pick one? And in some ways, it is easier to just pick one. But the benefits of doing both were so strong that a lot of people wanted to do it even when there was resistance. And so that was interesting to me, you know, as a kind of like an observer, as a journalist, to try to figure that out. And as you were traveling around the country and talking with folks that are part of this network, you know, how can you give us some context? How have things changed from the time that you started organizing and looking for community to where we are today? How have things changed? 
there's been a lot of progress in traditional religious institutions. A lot of them are far more welcoming now of interfaith families. And so if you want to pick one religion, it's easier than it used to be because you'll be able to find, you know, a church or a synagogue, a mosque, a, you know, a gurdwara, what, whatever your home is that you're looking for, and you're probably not going to be the only interfaith family. In fact, in a synagogue, there may be more than 50% interfaith families at this point. So, hmm. you know, as we, interfaith families, have become more demographically important, that has, uh, you know, an effect on the policies, on the, the mood, on how you are welcomed. Do you, see, do you see institutions changing policies because they are trying to keep congregants within, within the institution? Absolutely, but it's not simply a, a sort of cynical numbers game. It's often, we all have interfaith marriages in our extended families now. So even if you're a, a, a very traditional religious leader, you may have a niece or a nephew who's in an interfaith relationship, and inevitably that affects you. Um, so, I, I'm sitting with the kind of the, the the amount of change that has happened, but the the challenges, some of the common challenges that couples may find themselves facing. Um, I, I'm curious what some of those are. As you were traveling, and particularly with your journalist hat on, what were some of the common challenges that you found when you would have these conversations? Um, Often the challenges come from outside the nuclear family. So you may have a great relationship with your partner from another faith, another religion, or no religion, but you have you know, a, an in-law or a grandparent who's really not happy about it and going to cause a lot of trouble <laughs> um, until they come to understand that you're not going to change the way you're doing things. Mm-hmm. Or the challenge may come from those institutions. If you're trying to access religious education for your child or um, clergy to officiate at, at life cycle ceremonies and they're not coming along, they're not willing to do it because you're not committed enough or you're not committing your children or you know, just simply the fact that you're in an interfaith relationship – then that causes stress, obviously. So, but again, that's those stressors tend to be from outside the 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 partnership, the family. I even Pew Research did a study on interfaith families where they showed that more stress was coming from like financial issues than from difference in religion. It really isn't something that people tend to argue about, you know, whether the resurrection really occurred. No, you, you, you're arguing about how to fill the dishwasher. I mean, that is what you argue about. So it, it, it just, the narrative, I think, that these relationships are going to be problematic simply doesn't hold water. And there were even statistics saying that divorce rates were higher and I think those do not hold water. You have to look very closely at them because, first of all, it's hard to know divorce statistics because are you talking about whether the people marrying now are going to get divorced in 40 years? How do you measure that? Um, we should talk about statistics a minute. Um, the rate right now is that adults in the U.S., one in five is being raised in an interfaith family. 
Right now, those born before 1946, only 13% were in interfaith families. And that even includes Protestant Catholic as interfaith, which is really ecumenical. But that's the way Pew does this. Um, But just as an indicator, and among millennials, it it goes from 13% for those born before 1946 to 27% among millennials. So more than a quarter of millennials are being brought up in these interfaith homes. So, And the other interesting thing is that the most common and fastest growing type of interfaith family is Christians married to nuns, N-O-N-E, i.e. the spiritual but not religious or the, the atheist or the agnostic or the secular humanist or whoever it is that's checking that nun box. That's a real grab bag. A lot of people think they should never have created that category, but... Um, there are, I know, people who ascribe to multiple religions who check none because they, they don't know what else to check. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of people checking none. But anyway, um, that's the fastest growing demographic. And now I'm seeing a growing number of families that are tri-faith. So tri-faith. You, tri-faith, like cri- Christian, Hindu, and Jewish, all in the same, like a... a, a one parent is a Christian and Jewish interfaith child, yeah. adult, and the other is a Hindu. Um, or Buddhist, pagan, atheist. You know, that's not an uncommon tri-faith family. So th- that in mind, let yeah. me ask you this. You have an upcoming interfaith journal, family journal. I want to ask you who that is meant to be a resource for and how you intend it to be used. Right. So my book that's coming out in February, March is called The Interfaith Family Journal. And it's basically a workbook for couples and families to figure out how they want to do this. And my belief is that any pathway can work. Choosing your religion, choosing your partner's religion, doing both, choosing a whole new religion, doing all religions or doing no religions. Each of those pathways can work. They each have benefits, and they each have challenges. And it's really a very personal thing. You have to figure out what you're bringing to the relationship, what your partner's bringing, um, where you want to go together, what resources you have locally, um, what your extended family is saying. All of that gets factored into figuring out what your pathway should be. So the journal takes... A couple or a family or a single parent with a child who is coming from another religious culture through the process, which I have it structured in a journal where it takes five weeks. And there's questionnaires, there's interactive exercises, and there's creative activities that will help you to figure out how you want to do things right now. That doesn't mean it's not going to change. All of this change throughout our lives. Pew has shown this. People leave religion. People suddenly connect to a new religion. Um, you may need to refigure this out when your child suddenly has an opinion um, and tells you they don't want to do, do it the way you, you and your partner decided to do it. So there's many points. Or a parent may die, and that could inspire um, a different approach to religion in yourself. So, Can you give an example of the kind of activity that you're recommending in the journal? Sure. So, for instance, I ask you to do a list of, say, the holidays that you are currently celebrating from your religious heritage 
and then go through them and think about which of them have really religious meaning for you and which are more cultural or secular. Often people haven't really thought about disentangling those. And then you and your partner each have their own journal, and then you exchange journals and you read what your partner wrote. And then you have an interchange where you talk about, well, if you really want to celebrate Hanukkah, you know, am I comfortable with that? What parts of that appeal to me? Which parts of it I need to learn more about? How can you help teach me the parts that I don't understand? All of that interactive part that comes out of it. It almost sounds like uh, premarital counseling. It almost is. And one of the reasons this is needed is because most clergy are not trained to work with interfaith couples. They should be. And I'm trying to get to all of the seminaries and, you know, have them come explain to them how to do this. Um, and a lot of therapists aren't necessarily comfortable dealing with religion. It's not something that they deal with a lot. So it can be hard to find a therapist who feels comfortable with both religious heritages. And my feeling is you can do a lot of this on your own with a little bit of guidance. Susan, thank you so much. We'll be right back with this special broadcast of Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back to a special broadcast of Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We're airing an edited version of our first ever live show in Inspired Story Slam this week. Before the break, I interviewed Susan Katz Miller, author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. We learned about how multi-faith families are becoming increasingly common and how couples are embracing their various identities and encouraging religious literacy in their children. Now, let's get back to the show. Susan Katzmiller, thank you for being here with us. I'm very glad to be here. (laughs) 
Susan Katzmiller is an interfaith activist, coach, and author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family, and the forthcoming The Interfaith Family Journal. The five-week program encourages deep reflection, intimate dialogue, constructive ways to engage with extended family, and strategies for connecting with communities. Now, Susan is going to kick off our storytelling, uh, but first, I just want to remind you again, there's a piece of paper on that chair. Uh, take a moment, if you want, to um, write your name down, and the Rwandan Peace Basket is going to be circulating to drop your guest. Let you know what that was. Uh, all right, so Susan, we're going to get started, and, and let us start the slam. My parents fell in love in the late 1950s. They weren't hippies. My dad was a World War II veteran who wore a blue blazer and penny loafers. My mom wore sweater sets and pearls. But they had the bravery to cross religious boundaries and form a wildly successful interfaith partnership. My positive attitude about interfaith families inevitably grows out of my experience being inspired by their example, by their conviction that love wins. They were a bonded pair like a pair of swans, married for over 50 years. But my father died earlier this month, and they're both gone now. That means that all of the living descendants, four children and six grandchildren of my parents, are people with mixed religious heritage. I'm just beginning to think about what it looks like to be part of this entirely mixed lineage of this new reality. So tonight, I'm going to give you the latest version of a sort of a slam poetry identity statement I wrote about the fierce joy I experience whirling through the religious kaleidoscope. I am not a half-Jew, a half-Christian, a half-anybody, a half-anything. I will not be fractionated, unraveled, disentwined, dissected. I am whole. But yes, as Walt Whitman declared, I contain multitudes. I contain the rich harmony of Protestant hymns and the minor melodies of Jewish song. I contain the intersectional, non-binary, fluid, complex, religious multiplicity of the future. I hold and embrace the cognitive dissonance of my theological family. I claim my ancestor, who started out Catholic in Ireland and somehow ended up Protestant in America. I claim my Jewish great-great-grandparents who died together in a yellow fever epidemic in New Orleans. I claim the teetotaling Presbyterian Scottish ancestor who imported whiskey to America. I claim my Jewish grandmother, born in Louisville, Kentucky, to a circuit-riding immigrant rabbi. And I claim my traces of Native American and Asian DNA, mysteries permanently unspooled from their stories of origin. I cannot see any of my family members as the religious other. I refuse to other any of these ancestors or either of my parents or either of my two adult children or or myself. Instead, we will go forward arm in arm across the generations together. Thank you. (laughs) 
All right, so now we are going to pick a name. First, we're going to hear from Roy. Roy Likes. Come on up. Thank you for sharing. My name, some of you know me, is Roy Likes, L-Y-K-E-S. I was born in Laredo, Texas, on the border to Mexico, and I grew up in a population that was 98% Mexican and just 2% Anglo. And what a difference it makes in your life to grow up as a minority. Uh, my family, though, came from different places. I remember when I was about six years old, uh, I had an identical twin brother. And the first week at school, we heard a little nursery rhyme. We had no idea what it meant, and we came home and were saying what we had heard. And my father heard us, and he set us down on the sofa, and he taught us <laughs> a lesson I'll never forget. He said, prejudice is worse than murder, and we will not have prejudice in our household. And uh, I didn't realize how that would affect me for the rest of my life. When I graduated from college, I went to Atlanta, Georgia, and that was my first experience in another community that I knew nothing about. Uh, some years later, like about nine years ago, I got a call from a cousin in New York. She was at a church, and she called me on her cell phone, and she said, Roy, you, you're not going to believe this, but I just met a man at a church here in New York City that has our last name but I know he's not a relative. And lo and behold, she said, you've got to call him. He lives near Baltimore. Uh, I'll, I'll try to be as quick as I can. Uh, this is a, a land grant from King George II of England dated March the 6th, 1751. And he gave John George Likes a land grant to come to the colony of South Carolina. And he settled on the Congaree River and started a plantation. There's a post office there called Likesland. That was the original plantation. What my cousin called me about from this church in New York, she said, Roy, I met this man, and he has our same last name, Likes, L-Y-K-E-S. And it took us two years to do our genealogy, but my great-great-grandfather on a plantation in Alabama decided on September 12, 1860, that slavery was the worst evil 
in the world. And he freed all of his slaves, and he gave one of them, Ben Likes, 100 acres of land. This gentleman standing with me at the grand opening of the new Smithsonian African American Museum is named Lorman Likes. He is the best friend on earth that I have. We met nine years ago. He has four wonderful children, and they all call me Uncle Roy. I couldn't have. When I introduced him to Dr. Bunch, who's the director of this new museum, Dr. Bunch started to cry. He said, Roy, this is a fulfillment of Dr. King's I Have a Dream. Thank you. Thank you so much, Roy, for sharing that story. That's amazing. So we are now going to have our next story, featured storyteller. We have Luby Ismail. She's the founder and president of Connecting Cultures, and she's an inspirational speaker and powerful trainer and an expert on cultural competence. She's known as the go-to Arab and Muslim American uh, expert. She's trusted by the U.S. Departments of State and Justice. She consults with companies just to name a few, and now she is working on offering tangible strategies for organizations and institutions interested in confronting uh, diverse disability uh, challenges that they are facing. So, Luby, welcome. Before I tell this story, I want to say that my name is Lubna Mohammed Abdurrahim Ismail. And it was reduced to a four-letter word, Luby. Growing up in a small southern evangelical Christian community, because when they heard my name, Lobna, usually my parents got, what? (laughs) And Luby has been a term of endearment. I am married to a man whose father was Jewish, his mother was Christian, And he converted 30-plus years ago to a religion that he thought had no issues to seem a bridge between the two, which is Islam. And we have just, I can tell you, just coming back from my homeland, Egypt, Monday night, and uh, really had an incredible family reunion with almost 60-plus first cousins. So there is much diversity in our family. But I want to leave you with this or share with you this story. What are you? I was surrounded by a group of girls in elementary school, and I said, what do you mean? They said, are you black or are you white? Black? White? I never even thought about it. As one girl touched my hair and the other my skin, I blurted, I'm an Egyptian, I'm an Egyptian. Unsatisfactory response. (laughs) 
I remember walking home that day, turning up my sleeve and and thinking on this side, I guess I could be black, but on this side, I could be white. Thus began my journey, my searching for belonging. You see, in 1968, there were only two boxes to check, one black and the other white. And here I was, this brown girl with black ponytails, in search of my box, my place, my space, where I belong. 1978, my parents took me on a plane across the Atlantic Ocean to the place of their birth, my heritage, Egypt. I'll never forget I looked around and everybody looked like me, or rather, I looked like everybody else. When I said my name, Lubna Muhammad Abdurrahim Ismail, nobody stared, nobody glared. I thought this was it. I had found my place, my space, where I belong, until... I spoke. You see, I speak Arabic with a southern, long (laughs) accent. And then I heard, what are you? And I said, I'm an Egyptian. I'm an Egyptian. And they said, I don't think so. You don't talk like an Egyptian. And you definitely don't walk like one. Once again, my journey, my searching for belonging continued, and that was it. I returned to the United States, the country of my birth, and I said, this is where I belong. I received the Daughters of the American Revolution Service Award that I played for Miss Softball America, that I even went to the American University. I mean, how much more American can you get? But one day as I was leaving the Islamic Center on Massachusetts Avenue, with my hair still covered, someone rolled down their window and screamed, Go back to where you belong. Back to where you belong. But I belong here. Again, my journey and searching for belonging continued. In 2004, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, a degenerative neurological disease. At first, a cane, then a walker, a wheelchair, and now this, my power chair. My longing to keep belonging I signed up to coach my daughter's running team, along with other mothers and daughters. But as the fields were too muddy and the soil too soft, I lagged behind as the other mothers and daughters ran ahead. But it was then that my daughter, Layla, turned back to me and said, Mommy, it's okay. 
You don't walk with your legs, but you walk with your heart. Heart. There's wisdom in that little girl's words that we all long to belong. That in spite of the color of our skin, the country of our birth, our abilities or disabilities, don't we all long to belong? So I say to you tonight in our inspire moment, for us to remember, let us not just walk with heart. Let us talk with heart. Listen with heart. When we can live with heart, then we all belong. Thank you. We're airing an edited version of our first ever live show, an inspired story slam, One Family, Many Beliefs. We heard three stories from guests and audience members about the complicated and beautiful experiences that come with being part of a diverse family. Now, we'll hear from some more storytellers. Let's get back to the show. Next, we have our next featured storyteller. It's David Dashvin Keys, also known as Dash. By day, Dash is a professional programmer and a theologian in training, working on an MDiv from ILF School of Theology. At night, they're pretty much the same thing, except asleep. Raised Jewish, but practicing an eclectic paganism since 1998, they've been married to Megan, a Catholic, since 2005. Dash. So hi everybody Uh, I'm Dash And I am a pagan I was raised Jewish My wife is Catholic Just to summarize again And I actually thought I would tell you all A little bit about our wedding Because As Susan said earlier, it is those life cycle moments where religion and religiosity sort of like rear their head and you suddenly realize, wait a second, the church isn't going to marry us outside (laughs) and we wanted an outdoor wedding. We suddenly realized that, hey, wait a second, we're getting married in Vermont, but Megan, she was living in Pennsylvania at the time and I was living in Illinois, so we couldn't meet to have the pre-marriage counseling sessions with our priest because we were thousands of miles apart collectively. Uh, And so there was a whole bunch of really sort of thorny issues that we were starting to work on right around 2004 when we said, let's do this a year from now. Um, So what we ended up doing was getting married twice in one weekend, uh, which we thought sort of worked out. There's two religions in the family. We might as well just do two marriages. Uh, So we started working with the Justice of the Peace. Uh, We had effectively a civil union outdoors in a lovely courtyard at Southern Vermont College in uh, Bennington, Vermont. That was where we designed our own wedding. We put all of it together. It had sort of a traditional structure 
procession to the front, some words by the officiant, a reading by a family member, some more words, another reading. It felt very familiar to the people who were involved. But we were able to incorporate a few pieces of my faith into that ceremony. We did so. There's a practice in paganism in Wicca specifically of hand fasting, literally tying the uh, couple together, uh, not like so they can't get free, just sort of wrapping a rope around their, around their hands clasped together for the ceremony. We just did that. Uh, we had my father-in-law do it. He wasn't quite sure what it was or what he was doing, but we just said, here, wrap this around our hands. It'll be fine. Uh, so we were able to take pieces of my pagan faith and work it into that sort of more traditional structure so that the people who were attending would feel comfortable, would know what's going on, and yet Megan and I, we knew the pieces that were important to us were happening. Reception happens. That was great. The next day, we get all dressed up again, and we go into the church. And there, we were actually essentially married again. Uh, the very next day, renewal of vows within 24 hours. Uh, the, uh, there, the priest who married my mother and father-in-law was actually still there and was willing to be a part of this strange interfaith second marriage. Uh, additionally, another Catholic priest who was also, uh, who had the idea, who put this all together, he realized that there's a blessing ceremony in the Catholic Church where if you are coming from another faith practice or if you're seeking to be re-blessed in some capacity of a prior marriage, that is a ceremony that exists. And it was something that he felt comfortable officiating for us the day after our wedding. So we went to the church. We got married again. There was the very traditional structure, procession up to the front, say a few words, reading, say a few more words, other reading. Uh, and it still felt very comfortable, very familiar. Uh, not all of our uh, invitees came to the second wedding. They only went to the first wedding, but that was okay. Uh, and we have kept that going now for 13 years. So we have had a journey that even before the wedding uh, started with multiple faiths. Uh, we had a multi-faith wedding over multiple days, and now we have a multi-faith life uh, together here in the D.C. area. And we're going strong, so it's definitely possible to do. Thank you. Anyone else have something to share? Come on up. I'm Sandy Mars, and my middle boy went to George Washington. And their first year, they had, they lived 26 kids in a single dorm. They took all their classes together, and it was, I don't remember exactly what it was called, but it, it basically resolved around ethics. And his best friend was Kamal Sablini, who was a young Muslim boy, and as the years went on and the boys got closer and closer, we became Kamal's parents of record on this side of the year of the Atlantic because his parents were so far away and if Kamal had a problem, he couldn't always call home. It wasn't as inexpensive then as it is now to use a phone. And he would come with us to holidays and we went on vacation together and he would go home in the summers and come back. The boys lived together after college. And then Kamal joined the World Bank. And um, eventually he went back to Beirut. And he called one day and he said, he called me mom. 
He called and he said, Mom, I'm getting married. And I was thrilled to pieces and he told us about Marianne. And he said, but I have a problem. And I said, what's that, Kamal? He said, it won't really be a wedding unless all of my parents are there. And I said, I'm getting off the phone and we're going to find a way to do it. And we, my son was by then an airline pilot. So we tried to think of where we could, how we could do this the best possible way. And we tried to go to Paris and we tried to go to London. It was Christmas week. And so that wasn't feasible. So we went to Istanbul. And we had a magnificent time, my, the, the four of us, my son and daughter-in-law and my husband and I. And then we went to Beirut. And when his mother and I met, we were both in tears because she knew I was his mother. I knew she was his mother. And it was, he's still a part of my family. He now lives in McLean, Virginia. He still works for the World Bank. I now have two additional grandsons whom I love dearly. Um, And we are one family. That is beautiful. Do you have a story? There is a story coming. I'm not going to close up yet. Sujatha Masi, come on up. Who is going to tell you how recently she has contributed to diversifying further our multi-faith family? (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. Well, I was just wondering, how should I begin? Well, uh, I grew up very much part of the majority in India. I'm a Hindu and I grew up, my formative years were there. So when I came here, I was very sure of who I am and what I am and I've never really questioned my beliefs. Um, we have two daughters and they're both married and one is married to a Jewish person and the other's a Protestant. And I think uh, I actually never asked them when they were getting married what kind of ceremony they would have. It didn't strike me to even ask them. Maybe an oversight on my part, but I've never regretted it. So, um, and members here, Amber including, were there at my uh, daughter's wedding. It was in Vermont. And she told me, just as I was leaving, she said, Mom, please bring a little fire pot with you, a little urn, which I did. And I thought, okay, that's a Hindu fest, you know, ceremony where you go around seven times around it. Well, they did some kind of a modified version where they made their own vows and they went around four times and then they signed the Kutubo, Kutuba, Kutuba, which I still haven't signed actually. I just realized as it, so it was uh, sort of done that way. And my husband said, we must be very sensitive to the other side. So when we're making the menu, we said, okay, uh, we'll be very careful. We shouldn't have any pork. And uh, for the Hindus, we shouldn't have any beef. So all we can have is chicken and salmon. But then (laughs) I realized that the in-laws had got the first course of the appetizer was Serrano ham. So I said, wow, maybe we were oversensitive to this. (laughs) But um, again, then when a son was born and my grandson, and when he came home, 
uh, as is Hindu tradition, we normally do a little devotional thing with a fire and so on. And I said, oh, should I do it? And then I thought her in-laws are there. I better be careful. But I did it. And actually, they uh, encouraged me and said, oh, I want to take a video of this. Please, can you do it again so that I can... <laughs> so." Yeah, with a camera. So that was, I mean, so so far I would say that we respect each other's religions and I think both have followed their own. My second daughter is married to a Protestant and this was interesting. She got married in a Catholic country in Portugal. They brought a Hindu priest from London to come there because he would speak English and which was what the audience would understand. And it was very interesting because when the Hindu priest was translating into English many of the vows, my friends looked at me and said, you know, we never really understood our vows because ours are taken in Sanskrit. It's, it's like Latin. So thank God this translation came by. And uh, at the end of it, he told the in-laws that, you know what, you have now got a daughter because according to Hindu tradition, now she was their daughter, but she becomes yours. And of course, her father-in-law has a great sense of humor, partly Welsh and partly English, said, oh, that's lovely. So now I can ask you what to cook at home. And I, so it began. And I think over the years, I've said, when we celebrate festivals, there are three things in common, regardless of which religion it is. There's food, and there's music, and there's light. Whether you call it a dia, you call it a candle, or you call it the Hanukkah thing. And I realize that I will really say that we've got to look for commonalities rather than differences. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thanks so much to our featured storytellers, Libna Ismail, David Dashafin Keys, and our special guest, author Susan Katz Miller. Thanks also to the brave audience members who shared their stories. Jamie Pratt engineered this live event, which was produced by Melissa Fato and Stephanie Lecce. This rebroadcast was produced by Kevin McCarthy. If you missed any part of this week's show, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can also listen to Interfaith Voices wherever you catch your podcast. Just search Interfaith Voices. Our theme music this week is by MC Yogi, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe, I hope you are well, and I encourage you to stay connected. I'll see you next week.